Today, we are privileged to have Paulina Liss from Batch 24 as our distinguished guest. With over 10 years of experience in sustainable transitions in the buildings and energy sector, she is a renowned expert in promoting the sustainability transition of urban areas and cities. Her work focuses on improving livability, promoting innovation, and reducing environmental impacts. And she's known for integrating local community benefits into policy and program planning for ensuring just transition to low carbon systems. Currently, she works as a strategic sustainability consultant at Ramble in Copenhagen. Prior to that, she served as a technical advisor at C40 Climate Leadership Cities, where she helped global cities design and implement governing activities that accelerates the decarbonization of the building stock. She also worked as the executive director at the San Diego chapter of the United States Green Building Council, where she worked closely with topics of workforce and capacity development in the public and the private sector. Paulina, it's an honor to have you here today. Thank you, Malik, and thank you, Ines. Uh, you're, you're very kind, and I'm very happy and grateful uh, for your invitation to be here and look forward to the conversation. Well, we're privileged. <laughs> how, <laughs> Paulina, how does it feel to be back in London? It feels great, <laughs> always. <laughs> it feels great. I'm lucky that I live in Copenhagen, so I get to come to Lund maybe more often than some other friends and colleagues, but of course this time is very special because everyone is here. And for the batch 24 that I'm from, it's the first time since uh, our graduation in 2019 that we see each other and I get to meet new students and other batches and it's just a wonderful joy. Mm. Well, we are happy to get the chance to share some time with you in mm. this beautiful and cozy town that we're currently calling home. Um, and speaking of, let's take a few steps back to find out what brought you here in the first place. What motivated you to pursue EMP at the IIIE? I used to be what they call a returning student. So when I made a decision to pursue a master's degree, I was already a few years into my career. And... I realized I would really like to have a degree that helps me document what I what I do and what I think is a critical issue. And that is the intersection of business and policy. And EMP was really one of the few programs at that time that I found that um, really had that perspective on, on discussing both policy and business and the, and the relationship between the two. And then, of course, uh, studying in Sweden was an additional sort of decision point. I wanted to study in a country that's known for its environmental policy and its cultural commitment to nature. And I actually came to Lund before studying uh, to see how I feel about the place. And I felt immediately in love and said, like, yeah, I definitely want to spend wow. some years of my life here. What a great choice. <laughs> and uh, what are some of your favorite memories of your time in Lund? It's all about the people. Uh, there's, I feel like, no other way to put it. The batch uh, 24 that, that I was lucky to study with and MESPOM batch at that time and our professors, I think we created just so many unique moments that really were combining, you know, I think unbelievable intellect and in professionalism of people, but with really open hearts and really openness to the experience and to each other. 
I think the program facilitates that openness and I think we made the most of it. So my favorite aspect is the people I've met and uh, continue to have relationships with. You're not known as the gold star batch for, <laughs> for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Now, leaving behind the academic sphere, let's move on to some professional talk. Your extensive experience is humbling and very inspiring. And I myself uh, was actually brought to the realm of sustainability because of its connection with public health and well-being, something that you have worked with in the past. Can you speak to some successful projects or initiatives you've participated in that have promoted sustainability and well-being in urban areas and how you perceive their connection? Yes, um, <clears throat> this is a very, I think, important uh, topic in discussing sustainability transitions. Um, what I learned in the EMP program is that the language uh, around co-benefits is the one capturing sometimes this topic. Um, why it is important to discuss this uh, multidimensional um, value of sustainability solutions is, I think, because it helps us bring different stakeholders and more stakeholders on board and it can help us create a deeper sustainability value. We can simply create more good within one project or one initiative for more, again, stakeholders. I don't say people because the stakeholders can include nature um, as well, I think. For some initiatives, I think in, in San Diego, we really promoted programs at the San Diego Green Building Council that looked at reducing emissions and resource use in buildings. But at the same time, these programs were an education platform for local experts or wannabe experts. And we always partnered with nonprofits. So we looked at renovating or, or providing efficiency strategies, for example, for San Diego Food Bank or Ronald McDonald's House, which is a, a facility that's helping parents, provide parents with an overnight stay when their children are in the hospital. Uh, so we partner with these nonprofits to help them reduce their operational costs so that they can give back to the community in whatever uh, way they give back by providing food or providing help to parents or we worked with a uh, lot of museums and, and theaters and cultural institutions. So um, I think developing projects that develop knowledge, uh, this is really what I learned there is projects that, that bring knowledge and create uh, opportunities to connect and build collaborations um, I'd, are really successful in, in creating a bigger transformational impact. Um, that's what I later learned here in Lund, actually, when I was writing my thesis. Can I actually ask what your thesis title was or what the topic was? Title was uh, How Cities Work with Transition Management, um, specifically analyzing the case of City of Malmö and City of Copenhagen, and they work with building decarbonization. So that's really when I started to be interested in more measurable approach to these co-benefits and more specifically in the area of buildings. And from there, uh, in my work in C40 cities, um, and I continue some of that work now at Rumble, uh, really tried to explore how our discussion around 
particularly building renovations um, and work with existing building stock can help not only reduce emission, but also reduce energy costs, limit energy poverty, improve indoor environmental quality by therefore um, improving health and well-being of occupants. Um, and how these co-benefits can be discussed at the building scale and the impact on the individual, but also at the city scale by removing um, coal-burning furnaces, we improve outdoor air and therefore reduce asthma rates in certain areas. By having this broader um, discussion at system level co-benefits, I think we can, um, again, bring more stakeholders on board, hopefully advocate for, for public health as, a, as really one of the reasons why sustainable projects should be taking place. So, Paulina, as you mentioned, like your thesis compares transformational change in Copenhagen and Malmo, mm -hmm. uh, which, by the way, really for our listeners, it is published with open access at the IIIEE publication archive. And I highly recommend to check it. Uh, but going back to my point, Paulina, you often mentioned transformational change. Mm. But how can transformation change be utilized in the urban context? And what does it mean in real life? For me, transformation by default means change. Transformation means accepting that our work is um, an element of a bigger systemic evolution and that it is important to keep that bigger picture in mind because by making the problem bigger in a way, we can find more ways to make it impactful. So for example, if we look at renovating a building stock in a city and we expand the issue beyond just emission reductions and include how people actually feel in their homes, how do we want them to feel in their homes, we can create more impactful idea for the project. However, to actually deliver such a project, it may not be an obvious pathway to do it. It may be a big change from how we've been doing things before until now. Which brings me to the sort of second aspect of transition is that this constant change requires constant learning and accepting that we should be humble and we should be open to redefining the problems, uh, redefining stakeholders that help us solve them, and that we should capture our lessons learned and share those lessons learned as knowledge for ourselves, but also for others. That's what transitions mean to me. And in my thesis specifically, I was working with transition management theory, which discusses this need for dialogue, need for creating arenas, spaces to talk about things, creating new narratives, and the need for experimentation and learning and for actual projects. So um, anyone interested in uh, transitions beyond just change management within one project, but transition at societal level, particularly working with policy, I think it's a great framework to, to keep in mind as uh, wheels are turning. Speaking of the idea of learning and fostering lessons learned, have you ever worked on mainstreaming knowledge from city to city and does it usually work? Because a lot of people actually ask, even in the literature, mm. that learning city to city is really not effective as we think. But in practice, could you share a little bit of your experience on this? Yes, I can. Particularly what my work at C40 was and actually the work before is the knowledge sharing is sort of the result. Really what we're doing is building networks. 
and connections. It is that through building networks, providing a common identity, providing a common goal and common view of the system itself, so to say, in, in case of C40 cities, it's the view that cities are an agent in diplomacy, are an agent in policy, are an agent in, in markets and economic driver, and therefore they have power to influence climate action. The knowledge is the second part. I think the learning has to be relevant to the context. So if cities are to learn about the policy they can do to decarbonize buildings, it's important that they work within the same national level governance structure that allows them to implement those policies. For example, we worked a lot with cities in the US which have the power to establish their own building emission performance standards um, and therefore create net zero targets and and enforce those in mandatory uh, regulations for, for property owners. The cities in Europe may not have the same power because that power lays within the national government. So in this case, the learning Of course, there's still a lot to learn there. There's a lot to learn about uh, tracking data, measuring, you know, what the progress could be looking like and what the approaches are. However, the implementation may look like at it differently at, at each level. So overall, I, I think there is definitely value learning from, from peers and definitely there's a value in connecting with peers and uh, creating strong networks and collective voices. Super interesting. Buildings contribute significantly, almost 40% to the global energy related to CO2 emissions. Mm -hmm. What policies or strategies do you think are necessary to decarbonize buildings and create more sustainable energy efficient structures and cities? Mm -hmm. like what are the low hanging fruits that we could start from? Yeah, so maybe I'll start by just acknowledging that my point of view here is very much Northern Hemisphere. I am, uh, you know, from Poland and I work in California and everywhere in between, but I do recognize that uh, my experience and, and most of the cities I work with yeah, are in, in the Northern Hemisphere region and therefore benefit from, from certain technological and capability uh, level of implementing change. And solutions are different. That's very important. Some of my, I think, favorite and most important ways to, to approach decarbonization in the building stock are the policies that look at measurable and data-driven approaches to buildings. Building emission standards that I mentioned before is the policy tool implemented increasingly in the U.S. cities where cities have been able to collect enough data to develop baseline emissions and baseline energy use for an existing building stock and therefore set targets for future reduction at the building level, depending on the building typology, and create a pathway toward net zero emission building stock in 2050. For example, in New York, uh, local law 97 is that policy and similar exists in Washington, D.C. and Boston. For similarly, I would say for new construction in Denmark starting this year, there's a mandatory life cycle assessment disclosure at each new construction project above 1,000 uh, square meters. And there's a threshold. So there's a cap on that life cycle carbon at 12 kilos right now. And that target, again, is uh, decreasing progressively through the years. So I think setting these measurable baselines 
and measurable targets into the future, how, how we can reduce things to get to where we need to be to be 1.5 degree aligned are the policies I would refer to in, in the building sector. However, I also would add that the environmental metric itself and the policy that focuses on environmental metric should be complemented by policies that support more of a market transition, policies that support technology deployment and policies that support uh, workforce development and knowledge development in those particular areas. Because to mandate uh, renovations is one thing, but you have to think about training workforce to do it, what are incentives for heat pumps or insulation to get there, and how are you tackling the whole market transition, not just one technology implementation or one target strategy. So data-driven policies and policies that come in a package of addressing a whole market shift, I would say, in summary. Your experience with urban policies in the Northern Hemisphere is mostly within the US and Europe, if I'm correct. How would you say that ur urban governance varies between these two regions? The governance there varies due to the power that cities have over the building stock. Again, in the, in the US, cities, uh, uh, local governments in most states, I think, have, and, and that varies per state as well, will have the opportunity to develop local mandates. In Europe, and I am honestly still learning quite a bit how this varies from, from country to country, cities don't always have that power. So the governance tools available to them change. I really like the governance framework that actually I saw in one of the research materials from the INSTI that looks at governance mechanisms for sharing cities. And it talks about governing through collaboration, experimentation, regulation. Uh, you're nodding, you're, you know it too. Um, and so there is this circle of governing mechanisms that cities have. And I would say what is similar across cities, I think, is that collaboration and partnerships and leading by example, governing by managing their own building stock in this case, are always needed. And um, we have some examples from working city of San Francisco showing how important in the transition pathway the, the collaboration is. And, and at the same time, I recognize that it's, again, very different depending on the culture. In some cultures, particularly those working with issues of corruption or low trust governments, collaboration is not going to be feasible or not as welcome or, or not perceived as well as it will be in, in communities of high trust. So there are, there are governance differences that will come from simple sort of rule of law, but there I think there's going to be governance differences that come from very specific local context, culture, and what does it mean to be a government in a particular country. That's fascinating. And actually Malik is working with that exact uh, framework for his thesis. He'll tell you more about it later, I guess. <laughs> Speaking of which, one of my findings already after analyzing 150 policy instruments at the European cities level, these policy instruments promote nature-based solutions. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of you want the niche. Mm -hmm. We see that in the literature in 2006, if I'm not mistaken, Harit Balki was mentioning that 
uh, cities are um, doing the transition by self-governing. Mm-hmm. However, now with the analysis that I did, I was somehow able to interpret that cities are doing more than 35% of their policy instruments by enabling. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing more experimentation, mm-hmm. more enabling. This yeah. is the dominant mode, which is really interesting, like exactly what you were mentioning, mm-hmm. uh, what we need at the moment. But since you mentioned collaboration, we would like to ask you about the role of the local community. Mm-hmm. What is the role in terms of promoting the sustainability in urban areas? And how can cities effectively engage with residents and other stakeholders to promote a just transition to the low carbon system that mm-hmm. we're promoting? So maybe a couple of examples that, that come to mind it would be one from the city of of Portland uh, and one from the city of Copenhagen. The city of Copenhagen is one of the probably many cities, but one I I, I know about that works very closely with uh, property owners, uh, building owners in the municipality and creates a collaboration platform for them to meet together and discuss decarbonization of, of the building stock, data needed for that process. The city is leaning their own uh, energy management system approaches to the private sector to inform their knowledge of measuring and reducing emissions and therefore enabling that transition and and again creating a space where actors that normally maybe would be in a competition position are in a dialogue about this topic. So I think it's a really good example of how the city can demonstrate its own commitment, discuss their own buildings, their own challenges, and by showing their own leadership, really bring others you know, along with them and, and create a place to talk about it. So that's more on the sort of private sector level. So really engaging companies that are part of this transition into a dialogue. I know uh, that also happens at the Blocks Hub, where city talks with the startups and the technology providers to really keep tabs on what is the what is the latest and greatest in decarbonizing buildings? So I think it also helps the municipality be a learning organization itself, which is uh, quite important in moving the needle. In terms of the citizens, uh, what is the role of citizens? I think here it really, there is uh, a two ways to sort of ask this question. One is uh, what is the role of citizens? And, and second is what is the role of the city towards the citizens? And, and what is this role of their responsibility, you know, towards towards different groups. And when I was in C40, we did a little case study with the uh, city of Portland and talked about uh, how the city of Portland is looking to engage residents in developing new sustainability programs, new sustainability ambitions, but also recognizing that until now, many of the communities have been marginalized and have not had a voice at the table in these discussions. And that the decision makers, when it comes to Real estate, when it comes to energy, can be a representative of a very small group of people, not really representing the profile of the city. What the city of Portland did is uh, design an, an approach and implement an approach, which was a big learning, where the city engagement, uh, the citizen engagement wasn't only about hearing the people's voice, but actually creating a pathway to shifting power and making sure that people not only express what they want to happen, but actually have a seat at the table to make it happen. It's referred to, I think, as ladder of engagement. There's a, there's a great paper on this from an organization called the Movement Strategy Center that shows how not only cities, this applies to anyone doing stakeholder engagement, how we should 
deepen our dialogue to not only take information to inform whatever it is we want to do, but to give back by giving power over uh, that information and what actually decisions are being made. So in short, I think I talk a lot. <laughs> I think there's responsibility for developing democracy, for developing cities that are governed by, by, by people who are in them and having representation of all or the groups at, at the decision-making table. Amazing. When it comes to engagement, what innovation of engagement you want to see? Ideally, how the private sector would like to be engaged? I mean, there's so many ways, you know, to do it. Um, I really believe in project-based learning or experience-based learning. I'm reflecting often on, on the work we've been doing uh, before in, in San Diego and we engage with a lot of local government staff in teaching them about principles of operating green buildings by using their own buildings as case studies um, and helping them solve their own problems. I think this approach to innovation that's really connected to the actual experience is, um, is needed. And in today's reality where we have much more data and when we can build a digital twin of any building and any city, which is fantastic. And I am a big fan of that approach. But I've recently been reminded and, and really reflected on it since that um, seeing a digital twin of a building is not the same as being in that building and see how you feel in it. Uh, seeing a visualization of a street and actually being on that street is different. And so I think as we're moving towards more more data, more digitalization, which I, I think is going to be great. We also have to complement it with the lived experience and with the actual problems on the ground uh, and solving and innovating to solve the actual problems on the ground and not do it sort of in a limbo. This answer is, uh, is fantastic and it's a great leeway onto the next section. What are the three most essential elements that you hope to see in future cities? Well, definitely more nature. <laughs> Definitely more nature. Nature, well, first of all, we need it. Uh, I mean, the biodiversity collapse is here. Uh, so the need is definitely here. We need to do it for nature to give more space back to it. But also for people, uh, nature has a fantastic opportunity, gives us a fantastic opportunity to improve our air and uh, microclimates and our well-being and both physical and mental. So definitely more nature, I think, in cities is important. In the city um, sort of wide thinking, I recently heard this, this thing in a workshop that uh, someone from Helsinki said is that uh, smart cities are places where people can make smart decisions. And they use this term one hour more. They said that smart city is a place where your life is easier and you feel like you got one more extra hour in your life. And it really resonated with me. It really made me reflect on what it's like to live in Lund, where everything's seven minutes away. <laughs> and what is it like to live in London, where, where it seems like a big hassle to, to meet your friend for coffee. And what it feels like to live in Copenhagen, where I am now, where I can bike everywhere. And I really appreciate it. So I think that I would like to see more cities that are focused on the quality of life as we experience it, not only through the infrastructure, but the programming that's happening and, and hopefully cities where life feels easier and less stressful. So that's two things. Three, 
I mean, I have to say, I think cities that are ready for diversity. I think we should have more conversation about climate migration and what climate crisis will do to the to the movement of people on the planet. And sadly, I don't think a lot of cities are ready for the inflow of refugees, climate refugees, from cultures and that are different from them. And I think that... I would like to see cities preparing for diversity and preparing for hosting people that come from really uh, difficult places. Leaving your home cannot be ever easy and and because of climate, it must be very difficult. And I hope we're going to get more ready for it. Thank you for pointing that out. Incredibly important moving forward. A lot of us can learn a lot from your journey and lessons. <laughs> so as our last question, we would like to ask if you have any advice for aspiring IIIE graduates in general, but also those interested in pursuing a career in urban sustainability. I think we leave the program as generalists. Those of us who came to, to the program with experience from before may be building on that and have some sectoral expertise or some topical expertise. But those that are coming straight from undergraduate uh, studies may be still very broad, which I think is great. And we need more generalists in the in the market, in the workforce and in, in what we do. I think what I would recommend is a conversation with yourself about what is it that you're passionate about. I would recommend volunteering as a way to practice that or if you have that opportunity internship where you can really get exposed to the topic and develop if you don't have a really basic skills that are needed for the position of the entry level of your choice, be it communications, like what we are doing here now, analysis and learning some basic softwares, just making sure that you're ready to enter the workplace with something in your hands that makes you feel comfortable and confident. Um, I, I don't think that that hurts. <laughs> um, what, what's next for Paulina? What's next? Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward really to what I'm going to learn and where I'm, how I'm going to develop. You know, I am, as you mentioned, joined the private sector a year ago. I started working for uh, Rumble. This is the first time I work in the private sector and the first time I work in such a big company. And I am really stoked about it because as a generalist, I really value an opportunity to work with 16,000 technical experts. And I feel like it's a playground where I will have a chance to connect to the top level engineers, top level economists, uh, top level, you know, urban planners and architects. So any challenges I may have in pursuing my high level generalist thinking, I, I know I have a backing of experts in my company to do that. So I'm looking forward to learn. I hope I'll get to work more with cities for sure. I think they're such an exciting and vibrant, intellectually you know, challenging spot to, to work with. I hope I'll get to work a little bit maybe with Poland and urban transitions there and very much uh, clients here in the Nordics. I continue to be fascinated by the way Nordic culture approaches problems and innovation and I am really excited for the opportunity to, to live and work in the region and I just I just look forward to learning genuinely. Well that was Paulina Les sharing her insights on urban sustainability and a great variety of other topics. Paulina, thank you for taking the time to share your huge expertise with us and our listeners today. 
We hope you found this episode informative and insightful. Thank you for tuning in and we hope to see you in the next episode. Well, I want to say thank you both for inviting me. It's uh, so generous and so humbling to talk to you. And on behalf of the executive committee for the Alumni Network, thank you for stepping into the leadership role of your own by creating new narratives and sharing knowledge with our whole uh, student and alumni community. Mm -hmm.